a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So these words were spoken the night before Jesus was to be crucified. He's eating the Last Supper with his disciples. Just prior to this, Judas has left the room to go out to betray him, to hand him over to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and then they will in turn turn him over to the Romans. And he'll be killed. But before he goes to where the disciples cannot follow, gives them a new commandment. And the old commandment that Moses gave to the Israelites was, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that command is also echoed in the New Testament by Paul and by James, but can be at some times difficult to understand properly, especially because we're masters of self-deception and we can start asking this question, well, how exactly do I love myself? And this new commandment that Jesus gives To me, though, it's perfectly consistent with the old commandment is much less ambiguous. And he says to them, what I want you to do is to love each other as I have loved you. And before we read the rest of it there, maybe it would be useful to pause here and ask ourselves the question, how did Jesus love? disciples and were these men easy to love and I think the answer to that question is they were probably about as easy to love as most of us you read the gospel they oftentimes misunderstood what Jesus was trying to tell them they didn't always have perfect confidence in Jesus though they had no reason to doubt him We see stories where they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see broken promises. And now that Jesus is about to face his darkest hour, they're all going to be scattered from him in his moment of greatest need. And yet, through all of that, He loved them. He had compassion on them. He gave his very best for them. And then ultimately, he's going to lay down his life for them. And he says, as I have loved you, so now I want you to love each other. And what he says after that is equally remarkable because he said that this is how... All people will know that you are my disciples 
didn't say that people will know that you're my disciples when you all come to a building on Sunday morning and sing songs and hear a sermon. He said that people are going to know that you belong to me when you love each other as I have loved you. And I know speaking for myself that oftentimes I look at the lives of individual Christians that I've really been impressed with. Most of them are dead now. And I like to think, what is it about this person that just leaves this impression on me that here is a follower of Jesus Christ? Here is someone who just devoted his life or devoted her complete heart to Jesus and followed him. People like Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis of Assisi and Martin of Tours. They were just these humble, dedicated men who I really believe were filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of God. And it really impresses me. But one thing that I've noticed is that when I read church history, I oftentimes stumble upon these remarkable individuals, these remarkable people who loved God with all their heart and loved their neighbor. But what you don't see as much, and this is a shame, you don't read about outstanding churches when you read church history. And if you think about it, that's what we should be hearing about. We shouldn't be hearing about outstanding individuals. What we ought to be hearing about is outstanding groups of people that were united in Christ. Because the Apostle Paul said that we are not just units, carbon copies of each other sent out into the world, but we are diverse members of one body. And it's that body that the world needs. All of these men that I just mentioned, great Christian names that have passed the test of time, they all ministered in Western Europe. And I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Western Europe, but my understanding is that Western Europe is now almost completely secular. That the witness of the faith in those parts is very, very weak. And it just reinforces this idea that we don't want just single little lampstands shining out into the darkness. We want to see cities on a hill. We want to see communities of the faithful that are the salt and light of the earth. Because Jesus said, that's the test. That's how people will know that you belong to me. And this morning, Pastor Bill wanted me to talk about our membership covenant. What we expect from our members here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And as I'm talking about the particulars, I just don't want us to lose sight of this overarching purpose. That the point of all of this is for us to be cultivating Christ-like love for each other. And if we just treat the guidelines of our membership covenant as a laundry list of boxes I need to check off so that I can tell myself I'm a good member, we're kind of missing the point because we can do all of that. But as the Apostle Paul says, if we don't have love, 
we have gained nothing. And so I really just want to keep coming back to that overarching purpose this morning. And I think it would be helpful at this point if I just went ahead and read to you what our membership covenant is as it stands in the Constitution so that we're all on the same page, so to speak. So let me read it to you. Having received Christ as my Lord and Savior and been baptized and being in agreement with Emmanuel's statements, strategy, and structure, I now feel led by the Holy Spirit to unite with Emmanuel Church family. In doing so, I commit myself to God and to the other members to do the following. Here are the guidelines. I will protect the unity of my church by acting in love towards other members, by refusing to gossip, by following the leaders, by participating in a life group. I will share the responsibility of my church by praying for its growth, by inviting the unchurched to attend, by warmly welcoming those who visit. I will serve the ministry of my church by discovering my gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve my pastors, by developing a servant's heart. I will support the testimony of my church by attending faithfully, by living a godly life, by giving regularly. So that's the outline that we find in our Constitution of how we put this new commandment into practice. And last week, Bill addressed some of these guidelines. He talked about the importance of tithing, of giving to the church. It's one of the most tangible ways in which we can express our faith by giving to God's church. And he also talked about the importance of using our gifts to serve the church and the fact that our gifts are not given to us for our own sake, they're given to us for the sake of others. And we're putting our light under a basket, so to speak, when we're not using those gifts. And I'm not going to go into detail this morning for all of these guidelines, partly because Pastor Bill addressed some of them, but partly for sake of time, but there are several that I do want to focus on in particular. And one is prayer. Praying for the church's growth. And I would like to amplify that a little bit this morning and say that when we're praying for growth, we're not just praying for growth, but we're praying for unity And we're praying for that Christ-like love to be in our hearts. Because Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if we reflect on it for just a moment, we immediately see how staggering this new commandment really is. I mean, how am I supposed to love even my best friend? my best and closest friend in this world, how am I supposed to love him as much as Jesus Christ loves me or in the way that Christ loved me, let alone people that I would probably have no contact with at all 
if it weren't for the fact that we come to the same church. And by the way, that's good, in my opinion, that church does bring us together in that way. It unites people and brings them into fellowship that normally would not be in fellowship. But the point that I want to stress is that this is not something that's going to happen on its own. And I would really, really encourage any members of our church or anyone who's even thinking about becoming a member of this church, we need to daily be in prayer. We need to daily be praying for growth. We need to be daily praying for unity. We need to be daily praying for love. Otherwise, what we're doing is like what Pastor Bill was talking about a couple weeks ago with his granddaughter. We're just looking at God and saying, I can do it on my own. We can do this without you. If we don't pray, I just don't see how it's possible that this church is going to have a lasting impact on this community or on the world. And it's so easy because it's such a simple thing to do. It's elusive for that reason, because it is so simple. And it's easy to just slip into autopilot mode. But if you think about it, autopilot mode doesn't work if you want to have a healthy marriage. Autopilot doesn't work if you want to have a healthy relationship with your kids. It's not going to work if you want to have a healthy church. It takes a conscious, deliberate effort to daily be in prayer for the body, for unity, and for growth. And so this was one of the tenets of the covenant that I really wanted to lay upon our hearts this morning. And I have to confess that I have been remiss in this duty, and I've been trying to rectify that, especially as I was going to preach on it this morning. That's one of the benefits of being a pastor is you can sort of eliminate some of your hypocrisy ahead of time. I know that you don't have that advantage. But I just really, it's really been apparent to me lately in a way that it hasn't been before that we need prayer. We absolutely have to be doing this. And that brings me to the second guideline that I wanted to look at in a little more detail. And that is, I will protect the unity of my church by refusing to gossip. Let's go to the book of James. And I want to take a look at the third chapter. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. So this is James chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And I could read more, but I think that that really is sufficient to understand that the New Testament is teaching us that our mouths are, or at least can be, very, 
dangerous and deadly weapons. And when James is here talking about the body, of course, he's talking about individual people's bodies. But I think we could also apply this to the church as a whole. That the tongue has this same kind of damaging effect on the body of Jesus Christ. And there are so many other passages in the New Testament that address this issue of our mouths. There are so many verses about slander and gossip and backbiting and how the tongue defiles us. And I don't want to go into it into detail this morning. I would encourage you to read it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But we take to gossip, I think, like ducks take to water. It's just easy for us. I mean, don't you think it's true that as people, when we see someone make a mistake, a moral mistake, a spiritual mistake, that oftentimes what it produces in us is a sense of relief. And we think, oh, you know, at least I have not done that. Or what is worse, um, we start praying like the Pharisee who is next to the tax collector and saying, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm a better Christian. And isn't it also true at the same time that when people are getting it right, that has a tendency to produce jealousy. And we almost get to that point to where we want to see someone do something wrong. We want to see someone mess up so that we can feel better about ourselves. I mean, that's the natural ingredients that we have to work with as corrupted and fallen human beings. And what it means is, Gossip comes easy to us. Jesus said, watch, for you do not know when the master of the house returns. And we need to be placing a constant vigil over our constant vigil over our mouths. Because essentially what we do when we gossip and slander is we're saying, Satan, use me. Here I am. Let me be a weapon in your service to bring division and disunity into the body of Christ. I mean, I know those are bold terms, but I really think it is just that simple. When we gossip, we are being a weapon for the devil. And I'm not trying to make implications about the assurance of anyone's salvation this morning, so don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that these are the consequences of gossip. Instead of uniting hearts in Christ-like love, it separates them. And what we need to do is get rid of suspicion and malice and replace it with hope for each other. We've got to realize at some point that we're on the same team. We're members of the same team. And if you've ever played sports, you know that you don't rejoice when someone on your team is doing badly. Because the whole team suffers because of it. And we're on the same team. We should not be rejoicing when other people stumble or when other people get it wrong. That is time for prayer. That's time for compassion. That's time for the kind of hope that the Apostle Paul said that all men, that as all men die in Adam, so all will be raised to life in Jesus Christ. And we need to have that hope for each other as members of 
the same body. And so I would really just encourage us this morning, don't harden your hearts towards each other. Don't harden your hearts towards the leadership because the devil will use that. Scripture says he is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Watch. And a possible objection, of course, to what I'm saying would be, well, what if I have a legitimate complaint against a member of this family? What if someone has genuinely done me wrong? Do I have to just brush that under the rug and forget about it? And the answer to that question is no. And if we go to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives his disciples specific instructions regarding church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. This is what our Lord has to say. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, by the way, I'd like to pause there before I read the rest of it because that's really important. You notice that Jesus did not say, go to your pastor first. Now, oftentimes, that's what happens in a church. Someone has a complaint against someone else, and instead of going to that person, you go to the pastor, complain to the pastor, and then the pastor has to address the person which the complaint is against. And anyone who's been in that situation knows that it doesn't breed Christ-like love in our hearts. What it does is it makes us really angry. And instead of just being angry at one person, you have a possible list of people who could have complained against you that you're now mad at. And so Jesus says, step one is to go to that person alone and then seek reconciliation. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And by the way, in this situation, we're still in a situation where both parties are present. It's not like you went to that person and then you went to two other people or three other people in the absence of that person. No, both of you should be present at this point still. Both parties, along with two or three other witnesses, so that the entire case, the whole story can be heard. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I really want to emphasize that the point of this exercise is to safeguard us against gossip and also passive-aggressive behavior. In other words, that mode of behavior when you're telling someone how much you dislike them without using words, so you just avoid that person or you snub that person. And you could make a case that that's not gossip, but that's not love. And Christ said what he wants us to do is to love each other. And this is a messy process, by the way. 
It, when this actually happens and people carry it out, just to let people know, it's oftentimes not very pretty. And part of the problem is people go into it with this attitude of, I'm going to win a debate. I'm going to show that someone else is wrong. Instead of going into it with the attitude of, I need to be reconciled to my brother or my sister in Christ. Because it's very rare, it's very rare when one person is 100% in the right and the other person is 100% in the wrong. And so our attitude needs to be one of, I'm trying to love my brother, I'm trying to love my sister, but there's an obstacle that's getting in my way and I want that removed. It's not about being right necessarily. It's about a reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus said that this is what we're to do if we have a genuine complaint. But we need to be on our guard because sometimes we just have a natural dislike for certain people. And we want to say, well, I don't have you know, anything in particular against someone. I just really dislike this person. This person gets on my nerves. This person drains me. When I talk to him at church and we just need to take a step back and remember that Jesus died for these people. Jesus loves these people. We need to love these people. Because according to Jesus, that's how the world will know. that We belong to him. And lastly, I want to talk about life groups. And. We here at Emmanuel, we do believe that our corporate worship on Sunday morning when we get together as a whole body and listening to the Word of God together corporately has a very important role and function within the church and has a very important purpose for us as Christians. But we also think that Christian fellowship should not be limited to one hour on a Sunday morning. And we really believe that as members of a church, we're missing out on some much-needed nourishment if we don't go beyond that. And that is the purpose of a life group. So we can get together in a more intimate setting and we can build those deeper, more meaningful relationships and get connected. We feel like if that element is missing in your Christian experience, you're really impoverished because of it. And Jesus himself, I know this is a little bit of a stretch, but Jesus himself, you could argue, had a life group. I mean, he loved everybody and his ministry was for the whole world, yet he invested more in 12 particular individuals. And even within that group of 12, he had three that he invested even more in, James, Peter, and John. And then, of course, there was one disciple, John, whom he loved in a special sense, the beloved disciple. And we just really believe that by getting together, having that support, people you can share your life experiences with, people who can pray for you, people who can be there for you when you need something, is really filling a hole that needs to be filled in our lives. And if that's lacking, it's just very understandable why people would want to leave the church. 
because I think people do yearn for that deeper connection. And practically speaking, we can't become intimately acquainted with every single member in the church. <laughs> we, we are called to love every single member in the church, of course. But practically speaking, we need to break into smaller groups to build those more meaningful relationships. And by the way, we don't have a secret police here in Emmanuel that's going to hunt you down and excommunicate you if you're not in a life group. It's not about legalism. We don't want to build this legalistic atmosphere where we're going to force you to do it because we know that that is self-defeating. And sometimes people need breaks, too. My wife and I are currently taking a break uh, when our daughter was born, because our daughter was born. And now we're just getting back to the place where we feel like we can join a life group again. And so we're looking for a new one to join. Uh, So that happens. Life happens sometimes, and you might need some time on your own. But we just feel like we want to tell you that you're missing out. We, We want to give you this benefit And we want to give you this blessing of making this connection. And we just think that it needs to happen within small groups. Have you ever um, played that game where you're just given individual pieces of a picture. And you're left to guess what that picture is. Um, it's, It's a fun game. I mean, it has different versions of it. I think seen it has a version of it, and there's other versions as well. And if what we have in our church is a situation where we have some members that are praying and really doing their best to live out the covenant, and then we have some members who are engaging in gossip and slander and backbiting, then what the world sees when it looks at a manual is just individual pieces of a picture. And we're sort of leaving the world to guess what that picture is. The world that doesn't know God. We're saying, here, here, guess what this is. But if we would just humble ourselves and, and make it our ambition to be conformed to Jesus Christ and pray for one another and hope for one another and love one another, hopefully someday when the world looks at Emmanuel Baptist Church, it's not going to see individual pieces. It's not going to see individuals at all. It's going to see one complete picture of Jesus Christ. So they can say, ah, that's who it's all about. That's what these people are doing. It's about something bigger than they are. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here together in fellowship this morning. And I hope and pray that you would give us the gift of unity and that you would fill our hearts, your love for each other. Father, that you would forgive us when we stumble and that we would forgive those who sin against us. That you would be glorified in this body of people Jesus' name we pray, amen.